Hello, this is Brighter Evening, a podcast where we discuss fun, food, and ideas to make the world brighter. Good evening. My name is Josh, and this is Brighter Evening. Thanks for joining me tonight. I really appreciate your listening. Tonight, we're going to talk about The Last Man on Earth. Uh, Now, this is a television series uh, that was on Fox. We're not actually going to talk about the show so much as the premise. Um, The premise of the show is that there was this devastating virus, which seems maybe a little too close for comfort right now with coronavirus, uh, the, the novel Coronavirus 2019 running around, and it's in the news, and a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about it. I know, having watched the show, it's something I think about. Um, but in the show, there was a virus that went across the world, and for whatever reason, uh, almost everyone got it, and almost everyone died, and there were only a few people left. In the first episode, in fact, the main character doesn't know whether or not he is the only person left on Earth. And so the show is a comedy. Uh, you know, it takes place with the last man on Earth, at least initially, what we think is the last man, being someone who's not particularly competent, and he's just kind of wallowing in his sorrow. And then as they find more people, more people come to him because he's posted some signs around the country, a small community develops. But it's only a handful of people. There's never, I think, shown more than maybe 10 or 12 people alive in the whole world. Maybe there's more. Um, you know, d- depending on, on which characters you want to count and things like that. But my question is, you know, it, it's a comedy, right? And they're trying to kind of poke at some interesting things, interesting concepts like the fact that if everyone disappeared, the whole of human achievement would be at your fingertips if you knew where to find it. But I'd like to take the premise of the show seriously. If you were in the situation, you were the last man on earth like in the show, what would you do? Now in this episode, there aren't really any references because this is just my thinking. I've thought through the, the question and I've basically put together what I think would be the direction that I would head. Now, I'd like to do some more of these um, and not necessarily start with there's only you on Earth as the premise of, of other otherwise. Like, but the question is, like, how would you rebuild or, or would you? Um, so with that said, let's, let's start diving into it. All right, so what would you do? Well, I think one thing the show got right for sure was you would try to gather with other people. Whatever other people were left, there's nothing harder for a person than isolation. There's a reason that solitary confinement is a punishment from the punishment in jail. right? It's a form of torture to isolate people, and so anyone that you could find would be better than no one. So in the show, he he goes and spray paints alive in, in Tucson, I believe it is, on all the billboards that he can find so that People have an opportunity to find him. Um, so you try to do that, right? Try to find other people. And then you have a choice. Do you let the human race end? Do you say, well, it was a failed experiment, and we don't go on? We'll enjoy our, our last days? Or do you choose to rebuild the human race? I think it'd be a hard decision to make, in all honesty. I mean, that's part of what they grapple with in the show, but in in all reality, it'd be a very difficult world. 
one that you're not accustomed to. And if you chose not to, you could, you know, enjoy what you have left. But if you were the last of the group, you would you would truly suffer as the other people around you die and and you're left alone. So I think the right choice, I believe the right choice would be to rebuild. So how do you rebuild? Well, the first thing you have to think about is family formation and the needs of population regrowth. We have a lot of ideas from our society about what's proper and appropriate in, in a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, in all honesty, you'd have to reevaluate those in some sense and see if there was some sort of change that's necessary. Maybe, for example, um, you know, if you've got a community of a dozen people or so, you would share the child-rearing responsibilities in a way that we wouldn't typically do in, in our families today. Because maybe by doing that, it, it works better. You know, maybe, maybe marriage is different. I don't know. Um, a lot of those sorts of things come from eons of, of human history, and they're things that we, we know work. So we, you'd probably want to, as you start thinking about how your family relations would change, kind of look back in history and look at what's traditionally been the approach for things. There have been tribes. There have been... Uh, different family structures. It's a nuclear family, which really isn't that unusual of a concept over the course of history. So you'd you'd probably kind of want to look at that and think about for your situation, what do you what do you think works? And then you need to start working on rebuilding civilization, right? Because you've got population growth. You have babies. You raise them into children and then into adults, and continue the cycle of life. I think that part is easy enough to understand, and I think everyone understands that to a certain extent, right? Anyone who's thought about this sort of post-apocalyptic sort of scenario. I saw a TV show, I think it was from the 50s once, maybe the 60s, I think it might have been Happy Days, so maybe it was a little later than I'm thinking. But there was a bomb shelter in, in the show, and the one character took a girl into the basement and was trying to put the moves on by telling her, well, you know, if... Uh, if we were here, we'd be responsible for repopulating. It's very <laughs> it made sense in the context of the show, but in reality, it's a pretty weird thing to say, right? Uh, but that part's easy. Rebuilding civilization, rebuilding society, that's the hard part, because how do you start a society from scratch? That's the part I don't think many people have thought about. So, um, in the book Walden... I guess its full name is Walden, or Life in the Woods. Uh, Henry David Thoreau wrote about what he found to be the four basic needs, the four essential needs of life. And that was food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. And I think that's a good place to start. So, food. There are a few options. The first one you'd be using is the old saved food, right? And... If it really was this sort of massive population decline from 7 billion or, say, in North America, around 500 million down to a dozen, there'd be a lot of old safe food that'd be good for a very, very long time. Um, you're, I'm talking about things like dried beans, rice, anything that's reasonably sealed is going to last for quite a long time. I've heard, and I don't know if this is true, that at one point they took wheat out of the pyramids after thousands of years and used it to make bread. 
there's going to be plenty of that, right? You'll start out with cans and, and different things, but eventually, you know, you'll move on to different forms of, of stored food. There are going to be um, perennial crops that are out there, right? So if you're you're in a particularly uh, fertile area, like say you live in Florida, you're going to be able to find plenty of oranges. If you're in Washington State, apple orchards. Um, I mean, you you imagine it, right? There's going to be plenty of plenty of places that are growing lots of stuff. If you happen to be in Nebraska, there's going to be lots of corn. Corn doesn't have that many vitamins. You might want to find somewhere that's growing more vegetables and fruits. Um, but I guess that's part of it, right? You want to go to a place that has nutrition. So your other options for food are farming and hunting. You could certainly collect a lot of the you know beans and rice and grains and things. Um, you could certainly go into existing farms and vineyards and orchards and take advantage of the food that's already there. I would imagine that um, maybe, you know, maybe a mid-Atlantic region might be a nice area. You have a relatively temperate climate, especially as you go further down south into the Carolinas. Uh, You have a lot of fresh water available, and the farms tend to be smaller, and so you'd you'd have the possibility of having more variety near you. Uh, Whether or not you need to continue to work the land is a question, uh, because you're not going to have a lot of manpower, and... There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, only so much time you can use modern farming techniques. So you'd want something where there's like orchards and then the rest of the farming that you're doing is, you know, going to be by the sweat of your brow. Um, Hunting is another thing. If you want to get meat, you could farm uh, domesticated animals, right? Cows are actually relatively easy to farm. Sheep are relatively easy to farm. Um, You probably need to do some research, but they're relatively easy to farm. And I, I think that's going to be part of this, right? Anything involving food shelter and, and the rest of the stuff, um, I would say set up shop somewhere where you've got a public library nearby. Um, hopefully a reasonably good one. So you'd want to set up maybe near the town center and be able to go in because there's a lot of skills as a person in modern society that you don't have that you can learn from going into the library and reading books, right? You can go in there and read about farming techniques and gardening techniques And you're going to be doing a lot of gardening because you're going to be gardening to feed yourself. Maybe you don't know how to hunt. Well, you can go read some books on hunting and maybe get some ideas, maybe set some traps. Um, You know, in the mid-Atlantic region, there's plenty of deer. You could always hunt deer. So there's there's some options. Um, That's what you do for food. For fuel, um, the purpose of fuel in Walden is basically warmth. Um, So... Probably your your best option, if the society is that small, is wood, because wood is abundant, freely available. There's probably, within a reasonable distance, enough trees that fall down on their own and branches that fall down on their own that you would be able to get get as much wood as you need. Worst case, you can always chop down a tree. Um, Again, that's another thing you're going to need to learn how to do safely, but it can be done. Uh, Depending on where you're at, you know... uh, West Virginia is kind of mid-Atlantic. You might have coal as an option. Coal is also a pretty reasonably good fuel. It's even easier to use than wood in many cases. But getting it is hard. You've got to go deep down into the earth. Um, coal mining requires a lot of compressed air. So coal probably isn't a long-term viable solution, but it might it might be plausible for a while. Another thing is uh, solar panels and nuclear power. 
uh, with a society this small, unless you happen to have a couple of nuclear engineers, I think nuclear is pretty much off the table. I wouldn't say that nuclear power plants would be a risk, um, just based on their design and safety features and things. They're, they're probably going to shut down. They're not going to be producing a tremendous amount of radiation. They're just going to kind of you know peter out over the a period of time and eventually cool off. Um, but from the outside, there's not going to be any any radioactive risk, not not in anyone's lifetime, and even even and after that, kind of the really dangerous fizzle products will be gone. So nuclear's out. Um, same thing with natural gas and oil. Um, you know, you'll have some period of time where gasoline and and diesel are available. You could probably learn enough about fuel polishing to go polish fuel and and keep diesel uh, available even longer. Um, you can use uh, stabilizers and additives and things. There's lots and lots of fuel tanks around. So you, you could probably have uh, diesel fuel and probably gasoline as well available for quite some time. But, you know, it's also going to become increasingly difficult to deal with, right? It's going to be another skill to learn, another thing to deal with. There will be solar panels, but the average lifespan for solar panels that are installed is about 30 years. So you'll have electricity for around 30 years. That's good for your lifetime, for, for a lot of it, but maybe not so much for rebuilding society. In some sense, I guess it depends on how quickly you can have how many kids, um, you know, what what's going to happen. But solar panels are, um, are not a long-term strategy until you have an industrial base. And you're not going to be able to create an industrial base in, in 30 years, not, not capable of producing something like that at, at high quality that's going to take quite a lot longer. Um, shelter. That's probably the easiest one to solve short term because if everyone's gone in a you know, relatively short period of time, you can go in any town you want and you've got a bunch of houses. Your hardest problem is going to be just maintenance, but there's going to be lots of, lots of materials to, to make repairs. So if you went into a small town that maybe had a hardware store or maybe a slightly larger town with a Home Depot, you could get plenty of building materials and just kind of do some basic maintenance on some of the buildings. Um, I think library would be a key building, your home would be a key building, maybe some of the other houses nearby, so you can maintain a village for the people who you live near. Long term, um, people have been building houses for a long time. People have built houses in dire situations. Uh, again, with my Mid-Atlantic idea, or, or Pacific Northwest for that matter, you could have, uh, you know, plenty of lumber available to build additional houses. Um, you maybe use some other techniques, older techniques for building roofs or use some of these leftover materials. Um, you know, it, it really depends on what you're looking for. You don't want to ideally move somewhere that's raining all the time, but you don't want to move somewhere that's dry. So you want to pick something that's kind of good. But long term, based on need, you should be able to deal with any issues with shelter. Um, once once you've taken care of that, you've got clothing. Um, and clothing, there's going to be plenty of leftover clothes, right? We produce a tremendous amount of clothes, more than we need. Um, you know, there's going to be closets full of clothes that are available. Eventually, you know, moths will get to them, they'll deteriorate, and, and you'll need new ones. Um, there's plenty of ways to make clothing, right? You could, if you hunted, you could use the skins of animals. Um, you make some kind of leather clothing, um, you know, if you're in an area that grows cotton, you can probably develop your own cotton gin without a ton of effort and turn the cotton into something useful. 
you're going to have to figure out how to make fabric and how to make looms and stuff like that. But that's a technology question, and it's a question that is solvable. And it may not need to be solved for a few generations. I mean, there'd be such a tremendous amount of clothing available that... Um, and, and clothing is actually relatively durable, so you may not need to worry too much about it for quite a while. So those are the things that are, are kind of your basic needs, and if you really think about it, it's food and ways of staying warm. Um, that's that's really what you're looking at. Shelter also has, and clothing to a certain extent, has other pr- protective elements to it. Um, we use fuel for for other purposes as well, right? You know, with, with electronics and things. Maybe you want to establish radio communications or, or things like that. Um, and that's something I've thought a lot about, you know, in the, in the context of that show. They kind of drove all over the country and met up with different people and left notes. But if you know a little bit about HF communication, you probably could set up a fairly reliable long-distance radio network. Um, and And even if, you know if you're a bit of an engineer, probably come up with some bridge to Wi-Fi that would allow people to send emails to each other. Um, that would be good in the you know, in the short term, I guess, as you're trying to get everyone together. So we've talked about these four basic physical needs. But we need to talk about the social needs as well. You're going to need to create a culture. You're going to have to build it. Because it's a new society. Now, you've got a culture that you're taking with you. And you remember the old ways. But within not a long period of time, within a generation or two, the the living memory of the existing world will be gone. There's not going to be a person around who remembers how it was. They'll see evidence of it across the landscape. Broken roads decrepit abandoned buildings there'll be ample evidence that something was there but they're not going to understand it they won't have experienced it maybe they've read about it maybe they've heard about it but they're not going to understand it not the way you do you understand science and you understand technology in a very intuitive way because from a young age a lot of these technologies have been around if you're among the oldest people alive today airplanes have existed your whole life so is the electric light. So has tele- so have telephones. A lot of these technologies. If you're, you know, e- not even young, right? Television has been around. Computers have been around for a lifetime, right? The first computers were built during World War II. And the first commercially viable ones, well, they were in the 50s, right? They're sold to large companies, large organizations, but they existed. So you understand this stuff. It's been part of your your upbringing, part of your world, and that's going to change. So you want to be able to get back to that. So you're going to need to build a culture, and I think you need to do that through telling stories. You need to do that through repeating axioms and aphorisms and talking to each other about them and agreeing on what you value and what you believe. So these are the ones I would start to focus with as cultural values. First would be helping one another, helping others. You need to work together. It's a small group. It's going to take two or three generations at least to get to the Dunbar number of about 240, right? To the time that you're not even going to have a single tribe, right? You'll need a second tribe. And maybe if you do a good job, 
you can get bigger than the Dunbar number. You can organize society in a way where you can deal with a larger culture than just a tribe. Because that's our default state, right? We're only able to deal with so many people at once successfully. So if you do a good job, maybe you can jumpstart that. Because really that's what this question is about. How do you jumpstart society? The second one is the golden rule. It's been the basis of many, many um, moral and religious systems uh, you know, throughout history. I'm not certain of it, but I bet if you look at Hammurabi's law, there's probably some variant of it there. So the golden rule, I think that's one, right? Helping others in the golden rule. And I think also some sort of set of democratic ideals. An understanding of representative democracy, or at least direct democracy when it come, starts with a small group. By having these uh, ideals, you can help to perpetuate a system that works well. Um, I think also your culture is going to have to include health and safety practices, have a culture of hand washing and a culture of proper sanitation. These are things that we take for granted, but you're not going to have much in the way of medical care in a society that small. If you're lucky, maybe there's a doctor still alive, but there may not be. And if that's the case, you've got to do your best with sort of the public health aspect of things. Hand washing, sanitation, proper cooking techniques. Make those part of your culture from the beginning. And maybe some people don't know why they're doing it, but they know that it's what's expected. I would also uh, include justice, the concept of justice, both as a, an ideal as in fairness, but also a system of justice. Right, a an, an ability to have a means to resolve disputes. So if there is some kind of dispute or someone violates the cultural values and the laws that you create, having a system where they can receive an appropriate punishment and regain the full graces of the society that you're building. That's the purpose of, of the criminal justice system in some sense, is to let people pay for their crimes and come back into into productive society. We don't necessarily do a great job at that in every country at all times, but that's the goal. And I think that education is also going to be a key value. Without education being valued in the society, the society is not going to be able to resume quickly or, or regrow quickly because people need to be able to read and learn and understand enough that the knowledge doesn't die, right? Everyone needs to learn to read, right? That would be one of your key values. Before, it's just as important as working in the in the garden. Everyone needs to learn to read. Everyone needs to read a certain amount every day. Everyone needs to educate themselves. Maybe you have certain standards of education that every child should achieve and achieve by a certain age. We've found through, you know, the last few hundred years that the broader the education is in the population, the more productive the society is. A lot of universities were built, um, you know, a hundred years ago or so, that have, you know, mascots like the Aggies, as in agriculture. They're, you know, A&M in their name, like Texas A&M. It's agriculture and mechanical. These are schools that were built dedicated to teaching agriculture. And between that 
in the green revolution, and that that uh, involves fertilization. We've we've moved past famine as a fact of nature, and now it's a political fact. We don't have famines because we can produce enough food because we've learned the best techniques and we've taught them. That stuff's written down. Education, right? And education in everything, education in philosophy, education in history. You want that history to be alive and people to understand it. Education in health, education in the sciences. If people have a good understanding of sciences and a good understanding of engineering principles, they'll be able to build things. Probably also want to have an education in knot tying. I think it'll be very important. You're going to have to improvise a lot of things, and, and rope is uh, rope is something that is old, you know, as old as time practically, and it's something that you can use. There are other things that you'd want to have in the culture as well. Music. You know, maybe you have a good musician. Maybe you don't. Someone maybe can learn to read music. But sing songs. Make up songs. Songs that reflect your time and your values. Have people read. Read stories. Right? Read fiction. Read nonfiction. Read everything. You don't have drama. People act out plays. People acting out uh, stories. People doing one-man plays. Maybe you can, you know, have a battery-powered or solar-powered DVD player and people watch that, right? But but you need drama, and you need to write down your stories, your history and your ideas, your stories, your idealized version of things, and write poems. All these things, you know, singing, playing musical instruments, reading, fiction, and, and poems, these are all key parts of culture, and they're going to be things that people need to hang on to to feel like they're living a real life. They've been part of culture since the beginning of time, and that's not going to change. So it's going to be a responsibility in this new world to figure out how to make all that happen. Now, without five hours of Netflix a night, you probably have a lot more time to read, to, to build, to learn, to sing, right? To do all these things, and to build a, a good culture. And maybe you can even figure out a way to maintain use of electric lights as a transformative technology. Electricity truly was. It's hard to imagine life without it. Without it, you're going to learn about how people used to sleep. Time had it that people would sleep when it got dark. And in the wintertime, at least if they're relatively northern uh, latitude, they'd wake up for a time period in the middle of the night. And then later on, they'd go back to sleep. It was so common, people didn't write about it. You'll find occasional references to first and second sleep. We don't know what that means today because of the electric light. So that's another part of it. You know, do you learn to make candles? Do you read by the candles at night? It's probably a good idea to in the in the winter time. You know, in the spring and the fall, you're going to be planting and harvesting, and then in the summer, you got a lot of time for for more of this learning and mending and maintaining. So you're going to have to include all that in your culture. Now, I've been alluding to this idea for a long time. I think that technology, and I use that in the broad sense, not uh, not in the you know technology industry sense of technology, but the broad sense of technology, has been the thing that's really transformed our lives for the better. Right? Whether it's agricultural technology, helping us farm better, 
uh, electric technology giving us light and giving us uh, you know increased capabilities computer technologies allowing automations mechanical technologies allowing different sorts of automations right things that allow one person to be more productive and to give us time for leisure and to you know help people connect and have leisure and enjoy enjoy their lives um, some of the technologies that exist today will continue to function right you know special simple devices scissors will continue to work pretty much indefinitely as long as you sharpen them and for a time period computers will and and televisions will and things motors and generators and cars that'll all work for a while but most most won't not for a, not for the long term right a well-maintained car can last maybe 40 years. And I guess there's a large supply of cars, but how many can you maintain for that long that well? As seals start to deteriorate, how are you going to replace them? You're not, right? There's not going to be a manufacturer there to replace them. So, you're going to have to rebuild technology. And that's hard. But, we have a jump start. We have a blueprint. We know how to do it because we've done it now if you build your culture successfully to value education and reading and you're in the right area where there's a reasonably good library then you're going to be able to help the future generations rebuild the technology maybe it's not going to be quite the same but they'll be able to rebuild it so you need a culture that values learning and knowledge right and hopefully you have someone among the survivors who has a pretty good knowledge of basic technologies and science and they can help teach others and help others to learn it so you want to teach like I said all children to read and you want to be in proximity to a good library because if you've got that you can you can jumpstart the future right what it took us thousands of years to do maybe we could do it in hundreds and that would be amazing I think one of the things you'd have to do is write a book for your, to guide the future culture. And it's going to need to contain several things. Um, you're going to need a description of what the world was like in your lifetime. And you're going to have to have like a glossary with definitions. Because when you say, we were using music players, you have to define what a music player actually was. Or we used to listen, watch television. Like They're not going to know. So you're going to say, television was a square thing and it it showed images and videos and, you know, all this stuff. You're going to have to explain, like, the pictures on it would move and they would change and it was powered by electricity. And electricity is this energy. You'd have to have in that book an explanation of this virus and what happened to the world. Why did it go away? Because people are going to want to know that. Right? And so explain, like, this is the virus and it was bad, but the people who survived were immune from it. You're going to provide an explanation of the germ theory of medicine. That's a key thing for people to know. And then, based on your knowledge and your research, you're going to try to provide a guide to developing key technologies. And so, you're going to put this book on as many acid-free paper copies as you can. You're going to have 
say, five years to write this. Maybe you can go to the Library of Congress. I don't know where you would go to get the best information, university libraries. But you'd compile this book, and you'd do it on a computer, and you'd keep digital backup copies. And then once you're ready, you'd go get a bunch of acid-free paper, you'd run a generator, and you'd go print and bind this book and make as many of them as you can, and you'd scatter them around. And this would be the most valuable thing that you create. And so here are the key technologies I think that you would want to have in this book. Okay, the first one is fertilization. Fertilizing the ground. This is a key technology because if we know how to do it, and there's different versions of this, right? There's natural methods, there's, um, there's industrial methods, but you want to explain the progression of that technology. If you can do that, you can feed the population as the population grows. There was a time when the size of the population was limited to basically how much rainfall was, how good the harvest was. That time has passed because we learned better fertilization techniques and better farming techniques. So you're going to want to learn as much as you can about that. Write a great book. Put it in there. Second is textiles. How to build them, or how to, how to make them, how to make fabric, what plants you can use, you know, are you using wool from sheep? Are you using cotton? Um, are you know what artificial textiles are? How things get woven? All the techniques that are used to produce clothing and fabric, right? Because maybe we need sails. Maybe you need uh, a type of fabric to use as part of a roof. That's important stuff. The next is metalwork. Um, there's a lot in there, right? you got to explain what the different types of metals are, right? And you've got to do that with uh, probably some chemistry. And then, you know, gold and silver and iron and nickel and cadmium, they all have these different properties. What they look like, what they look like when they're refined, what they look like when they're in ore, what to do with them, right? How to melt them down, how to get things hot enough, how steel forms, how different kinds of steel form, right? Because there are different forms, and if you can understand all that and, and give the recipe for it, you're giving the possibility to create these, these metal things. Because metalwork is a key thing. It's one of the key technologies to build other technologies. The next thing, okay, we've got enough food, we've got enough clothing, we have metalwork. Now, the next thing we need is the printing press, mass production of education, mass production of knowledge. The printing press makes it possible. Early printing presses were just a pain in the neck to use, but they were sure better than writing things by hand. And if they can reproduce the early printing press, I guess I put paper making into the printing press, they're going to be a hundred times better off than without it. Especially as all the modern technology starts to decay. Right? So you've got the printing press. You've got the methods of folding paper. And maybe you even talk about the progression of printing presses that can exist, right? You have the very simple ones that were the early ones, right? And then more advanced versions, ideas that people had to speed things up, like printing, you know, sheet 16 a hundred times, and then printing sheet 17 a hundred times, and then folding them, sewing them together, then cutting off the other edges, right? All these are ideas that it took a long time to produce, once you have the printing press, education, right, becomes available much more easily to many more people. And that's going to be part of 
your culture, right? That's part of what you're building. Everyone learns. That's, that's who we are as a people. The next thing you need to build is a lathe. You're going to explain what a lathe is and how to make one. Because the lathe was a machine that could make itself. Once you have a lathe, you're able to start making reproducible parts. Your, your parts become more reliable. That lets you start with precision manufacturing and miniaturization. We've been continuing on this progression of miniaturization for who knows how many years. It still continues. They're still trying to get more precise, even smaller components in, in computer chips, right? That whole possibility started when the lathe was invented, and they could make screws that were always the same size. There's a great video out on YouTube. I, I don't remember who did it. It was called The Machine That Made Everything, I think. And it was about the lathe, and it really opened up my eyes about how important that invention was. The next technology is, uh, is a manufacturing technology. It's known as the American System of Manufacturing. And this was the idea of interchangeable parts. This is pre-assembly line, but there's a story about um, a rifle manufacturer taking to a politician a few rifles, taking them apart, mixing the parts up, and putting them both back together. And it was amazing because before that, parts were bespoke, right? They were made one at a time individually. And so because it was handmade, you know, part A had to go to rifle A, and if it broke, you had to make a new one for that rifle. With interchangeable parts, it's a game changer. And that's what we're used to, right? Uh, my uh, muffler's bad. I'll buy a new muffler, and I can get an identical one. That's the American system of manufacturing. I'd include in the American system of manufacturing the idea of the assembly line, right? Going going into a factory, part A to part B to part C. Now, that that opens up the possibility for mass production once your society is ready for it, once you have enough people. Uh, the next major technology would be the steam engine. A steam engine can run on any hot fuel. It doesn't require high-precision parts, but it allows for a new level of automation, new type of transportation, right? You have railroads that become available because you have metalworking. You've got um, fuel, right? So you can do railroads. You can use that for tractors. You could use it for a lot of stuff. Um, so steam engines are a huge jump forward. This is when you start getting out of the pre-industrial age in, in reality, right? You've got the lathe, you've got the steam engine, you've got a method for mass production. Once you've got the steam engine down, you're going to go into electric motors and power generation. Now this is a technology took a while to figure out, but we understand it, right? There's rules. There's a left-hand rule. It tells you which way a motor is going to spin based on the current applied to it. Power generation, right? There's different forms of it. It took a long time to understand alternating current power. If you understand some algebra, it's not too bad, right? If you got these electric motors, you've got the power generation in there. Maybe you talk about turbines. Turbines are used for power generation. They're more efficient than steam engines. If you've got good metalworking, and you've got a steam engine that's able to apply all this extra energy that you know the human arm can't or horses can't then yeah you've got this possibility of maybe producing stuff like turbines and finally we go into semiconductors and microprocessors I'd also say vacuum tubes um, you go to vacuum tubes 
you explain amplification. Maybe explain about microphones and stuff. That's a key, key thing because now you can build amplifiers and you can build radios and you can build telephones. And then you say, well, yeah, vacuum tubes are great because they're easy to work with, right? Once you, once you understand how to work with glass, you can make a vacuum tube. You need some wires and things, right? You need some wires to make inductors and some plates to make capacitors. You've got to get a little more precise with that stuff. Maybe, maybe some old multimeters will still work. Then you get into transistors. Transistors were another transformative technology because they made all that possible in a much smaller package and they allowed switching and they could be miniaturized to levels that are almost impossible to believe, right? They're, they're tens of atoms wide now inside of microprocessors. And so you go through that progression of vacuum tubes, transistors, and microprocessors. And in microprocessors, you're going to talk about the basic gates of a microprocessor right the the basic components which are AND gates OR gates NAND gates NOT gates right you show those maybe you uh, include a little bit about what an ALU is that becomes the blueprint for your civilization in the future I think you put in some more uh, poems some stories some things that demonstrate its value and then you have a guide in the back that says this is how to build the future now let's let's go back and think about what we're achieving as we go through each of these. Teaching fertilization, we're making it possible to farm more food than you need. Probably also need some food storage in there too, some some techniques for that. I think refrigeration, maybe you know that that's going to go in with a steam engine. Um, so we do that, right? You have more food than is necessary for the person farming it. That frees people up. That and textiles, right? Those two things. We need clothing. Those two are done. Now that frees people up to learn metalwork. Better metalwork, better farming, productivity goes up. Then we have the printing press. Between that and the ongoing educational efforts in your culture, people are going to be even more productive. They're going to find better ways to accomplish their goals that's going to free people up. The lathe automates. It makes machines reusable. Okay? More productivity. The American system of manufacturing goes right in with that. More productivity. The steam engine. You start really multiplying productivity at this point. Because now it's not just a man and a beast, but also a machine. Right? Electric motors. Power generation. Microprocessors. These push things forward. This is where things start to grow. And if done right, you can get a society like ours, where the majority of people don't need to work in the fields. The majority of people don't need to be doing a lot of things, right? People have jobs in offices and in restaurants, driving cars. So you have all this technology and it grows. The first few bunches of technology can be done in a small group of people, right? Fertilization and textiles don't need a huge society. Metalworking needs a little bit more. The printing press needs to be a little bit bigger. The lathe, maybe around the same size, maybe a bit bigger. The American system of manufacturing, once you get into assembly lines, need to be a pretty big group, right? You'd need, a, you'd need at least a few thousand people before that starts to make some sense. You can retool for different different things that you need to build. Then you get the steam engine. And by the time you get into 
uh, vacuum tubes, I think you could do that with a relatively small economy, maybe with uh, 50,000 people. But to get beyond that into semiconductors and microprocessors, I think you actually need a very large economy. There's a lot that goes into that. So you're going to start building this blueprint for the future, pointing people towards these resources, but giving people an understanding of what's possible. We don't know everything that's possible. I didn't cover the internal combustion engine in here. I think it's an important technology, but is it one that someone would have to need to know to build today's world? I'm not sure. I think maybe we could get by with electric. Maybe not. The, the, the books are still going to be there, right? Maybe you include it. Maybe maybe you don't. I don't know. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of these technologies. But as you as you build this, I think you would you would actually create the possibility for for rebuilding society. Like I said, instead of in thousands of years, in hundreds of years. Because if you do well with sanitation, you do well with farming, and you can quadruple the population every generation, which wouldn't be too hard assuming you can keep infant mortality low and you know develop a sufficient amount of penicillin and things as long as you can manage to do that quadrupling the population every generation isn't that hard that means if you go you go from 12 to 48 right from 48 to around 200 from 200 to around 800 800 becomes 3000 3000 becomes 12000 Right within, within uh, you know, 150 years, when our society is about three lifetimes in the past or two and a half lifetimes in the past, you could have a large enough population that you could start to have the economy necessary to do some of these things, right? Because certain jobs, certain things that need to get done require a very large economy to be able to slice off enough resources, time, and money, and, and enough people, for that matter, to get the job done, right? Building airplanes requires quite a lot in the way of resources. Building cars relies, requires a lot in the way of resources, at least modern cars. And the technology sector, gosh, you need hardware designers, and you need programmers, and you need project managers, and you've got to get a huge group of people to work together because these are hard things to do, right? Any engineering field is that way. You want to build bridges? It's difficult. And it takes time and it takes people. But you could grow the population and have that economy. And you could do it in in not too many generations. GitHub is a source code repository. Um, it's where programmers post their code to the, for the world to use, or at least to see, depending on how it's licensed. Right? It's a copyright thing. You could listen to one of the copyright episodes if you want to kind of think about what that means. Um, but a lot of it's free software, open source software, software that people are allowed to study and review and, and use and, and different things. They had this project where they took the, uh, the source code and they put it on these special sheets that are optically scannable. So you can like scan them in and turn them back into source code. And it's a source code to all kinds of stuff. You know, really important stuff like the Linux kernel that runs in, you know, everything from set-top boxes to Android phones to Tesla cars to 
I mean, you name it, right? It, it's running pretty much everywhere but in Apple devices and Windows computers. Um, you know, they've got uh, GCC, which tons of stuff uses that. Clang, tons of stuff uses that as underlying infrastructure really to, to build other stuff. Um, there's database technologies, things that took a lot of years for people to figure out, and it's there. So if the society got back to a, a population where it was large enough, there could be an expedition. They're, they're near the seed vault in Svalbard, from what I understand. So an expedition could go to Svalbard, maybe get some seeds, maybe get the source code, and use that to jumpstart the technology sector. Right? It could, It could go from computers existing... Right, we can have computers that are now capable of doing this job, some basic computers, to modern computers in fifteen years. There'll be some very big difficulties with replicating the processes necessary to build modern microchips because the sizes are so small. I mean, it's unbelievably tiny, and and the technology is very difficult. Right, it's very capital intensive. But I did read a story where a guy had gotten some of this equipment and built some equipment, and he made a nice, this, like the last couple of years, he built a state-of-the-art, as of 1977, microchip in his garage. It's something a single person could learn, and if the industrial base is there, a small group of people could probably accomplish. And now 1977 state-of-the-art isn't great, but it's actually not bad. It's, you know... It's far beyond what was possible even during the space program, right? It, it is, uh, you know, way, way better than that. Would you want to get further than that? Sure. If you get to 90s technology, great. If you can get to, you know, 2020 technology, even better. That'll take some time, but it's all possible, and, and the stuff would be there. So there, there are possibilities to make these giant leaps forward. It's, it's fun. It's been a fun thing to think through this and to talk through what I think the right direction is to to rebuild. And I hope I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it as well. I'm hoping to maybe do another episode like this with a different scenario than the last man on earth type scenario. Thank you for listening to Brighter Evening. Maybe I hope start with I've a made your evening brighter in a different situation. You can subscribe you to us by that. RSS on Google or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you, you get your podcasts. My name for is more Josh. information on Thank the show you. or this episode, please visit brighterevening.com.